We're going to continue to unpack this doctrine of unity in the church that's found in the verse that we just read. Remember that I'm trying to prove the priority of unity by noticing the placement of this theme in various passages of Scripture, various places in the Bible. We've seen John 17, the high priestly prayer. There our Lord prays that His church, His people would be one. Last Lord's Day, we looked at Acts chapter 2. We saw the, the immediate response of the proclamation of the gospel for the very first time after the resurrection and ascension of Christ issued forth in a, a uniting of people together in several things. They were drawn together. Today we're going to cover the final two passages under this category of evidence that I'm calling the placement of references. Remember the idea is, how can you determine what is a priority in the Scripture? How do you know if it's actually important? Well, the, the first thing I'm, I'm, the first category I'm using is the placement of this theme in various passages of Scripture. So we're going to look at the last two. Not that these are the last two in Scripture, just the last two that I want to look at together. Before we look at those passages, I want to remind you of a principle that we noted back when we were painting a picture of unity at the very beginning. And the principle um, is this. Or maybe I, should, maybe I should say this just as a reminder. Unity, what I'm talking about, what I'm trying to describe is the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony. Okay, now the principle that we covered when we were opening up and unpacking that was this. Doctrine always leads to practice. There's a connection between those two things. That's why we can, as a church, expect to pursue them both. You pursue doctrine, that will lead to practice. That will lead to a harmony in both. Doctrine always leads to practice. Doctrine exists to change us in the way that we live. What we have been given to believe has been given to shape our living. Not just our thinking, but our living. Or we could say it this way. Doctrine, when truly understood and rightly applied in the mind and the heart, will have effects on the way that we live. That's why when you hear people uh, describing the haughty and prideful Calvinist, your first thought should be, that doesn't make any sense. If that person exists, that, 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 that would be an oxymoron. That, that shouldn't be. If we've rightly understood what we call the doctrines of grace, there should be no haughtiness. There should be no pride in us. We, we understand that. The doctrine shapes the way we live. It has an effect on the way that we, we live. One of the texts that I read was Deuteronomy 29, 29 that tells us that the things that have been revealed are so that we might do. There are mysteries. There are things we don't know. But what has been revealed has been revealed so that we would do all the words of this law. Revelation is given for doing. Another text. The men heard this Wednesday night, James 1.22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If all you do is hear and externally agree, you say, I, I like that doctrine, I like that teaching, that sounds good to me. But it but it doesn't move into doing, you're self-deceived. You've tricked yourself. You, you might think, I'm doing well. God says, no, you, you are deceived. You're walking with a blindfold on. Chapter 2 of James. Faith apart from works is dead. Faith, belief, or, or so-called belief, if it doesn't issue forth in works, actions, then it's... Dead faith. We could say it's a non-saving imitation of faith. Fake faith. Not, it's not the real thing. So again I say the doctrine that is set forth in the Word of God when we have understood it and believed it and when it has taken real roots in our souls will always have some effect on our lives. Every person on the planet right now is living according to what they believe. Every one of them. Now... That's the principle. I just want to set that for you, remind you that that's there. Now, shifting gears. If I came to you and I said, quick, name two books of the New Testament that are 
that, that stand out, have earned the reputation of being exemplary with regard to the rich feast of foundational and structurally essential doctrine of the Christian faith. If I said, quick, just name two. Don't say it out loud, but I wonder what your answer would be. Books of the Bible that, that are known to be packed full of bedrock, non-negotiable doctrine, as well as structurally essential, that is the whole Christian faith is built around these doctrines. If I said, quick, name two. I'm guessing that most of you are thinking right now, the book of Romans, and then... Number two, I, I could see how there would be various answers, but I'm guessing the book of Ephesians would be another one, at least in somebody's minds. The book of Romans and the book of Ephesians. Not to the neglect of the others, of course. If I say, you know, Hebrews is a close second, some of you are probably saying, oh, Hebrews, I forgot about that one. Because there are some books of the Bible that earn this popular reputation for being the books packed full of sound doctrine. There are others of them that are, that are really packed full of sound doctrine, but... It takes some of us a little longer to actually see what all is there. In Hebrews and Ephesians, the, or I mean Romans and Ephesians, it's almost just like it's laid out. Here's a red carpet of just doctrine, rich, theological, uh, foundational, structurally essential doctrine. These two epistles of Paul have over time earned the reputation for being compacted treasuries of truth. So what I want to do is use Romans and Ephesians, these two books, as examples. Treasure troves of doctrine, yes, but I want to use them as examples to show you that the teaching of unity amongst the saints is actually nestled right in the heart of those books. That if, if I came to you and I said, quick, name two books of the New Testament that talk about the doctrine of unity amongst the saints. You would say, uh, I mean, I think there's a reference here. I think there might be something. You might be able to name a verse or two. I want to show you that the books that we often think of as the most doctrinal also have right at the most pivotal point the concept of unity. That's the goal. So we're going to spend time all over each of these books. Uh, we'll start wide and narrow our focus as, as we've been doing with the other texts. Uh, we're not going to get into many of the nitty-gritty details of exegesis. I'm going to try to summarize some things that are actually really hard to explain. Um, I, I just want you to see it. I want to show you the doctrine, and we're all going to say, yes, amen, there's the doctrine. Then I'm going to say, now look here. And hopefully you'll say, huh, it, it was right there the whole time. I didn't even notice it. I want you to be able to develop a keen eye for these things. A, an experienced deer hunter has a keen eye for things in the woods that the rest of us don't see. Uh, some people might go out in the woods, they sit, they get real quiet. They listen, they say, well, there's no deer here because I don't hear them and I don't see them. An experienced deer hunter would say, well, there's a scrape in the leaves right there and that little sapling over there has some bark rubbed off of it there are deer here. It's just that they were 100 yards away by the time you started decided to get quiet. They have a keen eye for this. So what I want to do is try to help you develop a keen eye for locating themes and doctrines within other places where you don't typically see them. Uh, we will be moving quickly. I don't expect you to turn to every reference. I just want to show you a, a bunch of different things and and bring it all together. The, the references as we walk through these books are not so much the point as is just taking in the whole and then, then I want to show you this doctrine of unity. The, the picture, those of you who have young children, especially many young children, imagine that you, you want to take the kids out for the day. You're going to go to the park, pack everybody up in the vehicle, you drive to a park, you get everything out, you get everything ready, you're going to have a picnic. You take a bite of your food. You get all the kids gathered around and get all their plates made. You take a bite of your food and say, all right, let's pack up and go to another park. You pack everything up, all of it back up, load it back up in the vehicle, load everybody back in the vehicle, drive to another park, do all the same thing. That's what we're going to do with Romans and Ephesians. That's what it's going to feel like. And So if, you feel, if we get to the end and you say, I feel like I just heard two, two separate sermons, don't feel the need to pay any extra. That's just how it's going to feel. Like you'd, We're going to walk through two books together. And, and the reason really, we, we could do this in two separate weeks, but I want to get through this 
this particular theme. So I'm going to use the, this outline for both of them. A survey of the doctrine. Then secondly, the transition to practice. And then we'll notice the priority of unity. So a survey of the doctrine, it will transition to practice, and then the priority of unity. First, the book of Romans. Number one, a survey of the doctrine in the book of Romans. In the preface to his commentary on Romans, Robert Haldane says this, quote, "...while every part of the Word of God demands the most serious attention..." It is not to be doubted that certain portions of the sacred volume call for more frequent and deeper meditation. In the Old Testament, the book of Psalms contains a summary of all Scripture. Anybody ever thought about that? Maybe you'll go home and read the Psalms a little differently. The book of Psalms contains a summary of all Scripture. And then he says, in the New Testament, the epistle to the Romans is entitled, A Peculiar Regard. It is the only part of Scripture which contains a detailed and systematic exposition or exhibition of the doctrines of Christianity. The book of Romans is one that all of us should be making our way back to time and time again. Either to, either to read it again, to study it again, or maybe we, we want to go back and hear a particular doctrine articulated in, a, in its clearest form, or maybe we want to go there as a, a proof text and a support for a doctrine that's stated somewhere else that it, maybe it's a little bit fuzzy, but we would say, well, I see the same thing over here in Romans, and it's crystal clear. Romans is one of those books. There are, there are certain books of the Bible that if, you, if you're going to have a shelf of commentaries on one book, uh, Romans would be one of those books. Um, I don't know anybody that has a shelf of commentaries on the book of Zephaniah. Not saying that there's not good sound doctrine there. Not saying that that's not the Word of God. But there are some books that you just want to know because of, the, of how much meat and fatness there is in them. And Romans is one of those books. Now, what are some of those doctrines? Again, we're, this is a survey of the doctrine. First, let's consider the grand theme of the righteousness of God in the book of Romans. There's no doubt that all Scripture bears witness to the righteousness of God. But in this letter, the righteousness of God is presented a little bit differently, in a, in a, in a, in a different light, we could say. While Paul does address the righteousness of God, as we often think of it, an attribute of God in the book of Romans, the righteousness of God in Romans is not merely something that God is. It's not even merely something that God demands of men. We must be righteous as He is righteous. But in Romans, the righteousness of God is something that God freely imputes to sinners. This is the way I've said it before. In, in Romans, it's the righteousness which God's righteousness requires Him to require of men, which He freely gives to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God requires Him to require righteousness of us. And He freely gives that righteousness to us through Christ. That's when, when you see the righteousness of God in Romans, very often all of that is encompassed in it or related to it in some way. For example, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, He says, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed..." From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And this is something that has tormented the minds of men in history. Because they say, how is it good news that God is righteous? This is what, what Luther hated about God. How is it that that is good news? But then he kept reading and he said, I, I realize what he's saying. What he's saying is the gospel reveals the righteousness which God requires, which God's righteousness requires of Him to require of us, but that He freely gives. That's the point that He's making. The gospel is the good news that God not only requires righteousness, but that He freely offers it to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. In Romans 3, 21 and 22, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets do bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Again, we, we couldn't say that all of a sudden the righteousness of God was revealed. We've known that from the very beginning. The righteousness of God was always revealed. What he's saying is, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed in, a, in, a, in a, an entirely new light. It's a righteousness that God imputes to sinners. It's not something that we can earn by law-keeping. It's a, right, a righteousness granted to us apart from the law, apart from our works. He grants it. That's what he's saying. This is the goodness of the gospel. In chapter 4, verse 6, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. David knew about this, this doctrine of imputed righteousness, a righteousness reckoned to us or, or counted to us apart from what we've done. Romans 5.1, Since therefore we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word justified could also be translated counted or declared righteous. In other words, since we have been declared righteous, we have peace with God. Not since we've done all of the things that, that make us good enough to be reconciled to God. No, since we've been declared righteousness, righteous, we have peace with God. God's righteousness required Him to require righteousness of us. We forfeited our righteousness, and so God provided the righteousness for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the righteousness is, is that's being described in the book of Romans. Now, how could that be? Romans 5.19 As by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. One man, he obeyed. Jesus Christ. By the one man's obedience, his obedience, we are then declared righteous. To summarize the doctrine, God's perfect righteousness requires that any who would enjoy fellowship with Him also bear that same righteousness. Because of sin, by nature, we are excluded from that option. We don't get that option anymore. We're excluded from fellowship with Him. We can't produce our own righteousness. In love, God sent His Son into the world to live and die as a man in our place. Christ's living was perfectly righteous and it wasn't for Him, it was for us. His living was for us. And so now the Christian is treated by God according to the righteousness that Christ has earned. Not according to our sins, but according to what Christ has done. The second doctrine that we find in the book of Romans is what I'm calling the equalizing standard of sola fide. The equalizing standard of sola fide. Sola fide means faith alone. The idea is that men come into possession of this righteousness of God by faith alone. Nothing else. And I call it the equalizing standard because when you read the book of Romans, the way that it's presented is Paul is saying this is the only way by which anyone can be saved, Jew or Gentile. Sola fide puts all men on level ground. Nobody gets another way out. Romans 1.17, again, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He opens by explaining that the gospel does reveal a righteousness for us and it is a righteousness that's only received by faith. Only the believing ones will be justified. Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's only through faith that anybody could be declared righteous. Romans 4.16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. See, God will not have His grace impugned. God says essentially, I will save by grace or I will not save at all. He, he, there's only one way and it's by God's grace through faith. And that's what He's done. He, he has ordered in His infinite wisdom, ordered a salvation that we can only possess through faith. That way all of the glory goes to Him. Romans 5.1, we've been justified by faith. And again, that the, the secondary issue, neither Jew or Gentile can get out of this. In chapter 10, verses 11 to 13, he says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Everybody. 
Nobody gets, the Jews can't say, we're, well, we're the offspring of Abraham, so that, that faith thing is not for us. No, he says this is the only way that anyone comes is through faith. It's the equalizing standard. Again, to summarize the doctrine, God saves men only in a way which magnifies His own grace, and that way is faith. Works will not do. It must be faith. The, the very opposite of works. Faith is the very opposite of looking at what you've done. It's looking to what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. Romans 3.30 God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, Jews, and the uncircumcised through faith, Gentiles, everybody. The equalizing standard. The third doctrine that we see in Romans is the undeniable fruit of sanctification. The inevitability of growing in holiness is a theme in the book of Romans. Romans 6, 1 and 2. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Verse 18, Having been set free from sin, we are slaves of righteousness. Romans 7, 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Again, I'm, I'm putting all this together, summarizing that this is, what, this is what Paul's teaching. All who come into fellowship with God through faith, who are imputed the righteousness of Christ, will absolutely be sanctified. They will not continue in their, their old way of living. It's, it's not possible. It's inconceivable to Paul. And that, that is important to Christianity. That's, that's bedrock foundational doctrine. We've died to sin. Sin does not reign in us. We are slaves of righteousness. And we serve God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Another thing that we see in Romans, the message of God's faithfulness to gather in all of His elect from the nations. That's the theme that He takes up in Romans 9-11. through See, Jews and Gentiles are, are, have this tendency to think in, in only those two categories. It's either all the Jews and only the Jews, or it's only the Gentiles and no Jews. And Paul's arguing, no, 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 that, we don't need to think in those terms. Think in terms of God's promise to His elect. All that God has chosen will be saved. In Romans 9, 6, in dealing with the fact that the supermajority of Jews had rejected Christ and would be eternally damned, Paul says, Romans 9, 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, God's promises of salvation were never exclusive to the Jewish nation, nor exhaustive. God never said every Jew would be saved. He never said that. And then in chapter 11, continuing in the same line of thinking, verses 1 and 2, I ask them, has God rejected His people? By no means. No way, Paul says. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Paul doesn't say, well, by no means. All the Jews are going to get saved. He says, no, God has not rejected His people, those whom He foreknew. Take me, for example. I'm a Jew and I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. God has not cast the Jews off. Those whom He foreknew will be saved. Those foreknown and predestined, that is, the elect, will certainly be saved. Out of every nation, God will not fail to save His people. All of this is set against the backdrop of the book of Romans teaching on universal depravity. This is the last doctrine that stands out in, in the book of Romans. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Men in their sin suppress the truth. It's not that they don't know it. They do know it. And because they're evil, they, they, they hold it down. They push it away. They put it aside. They ignore it. They, they pretend like it's not true. Why? Because they're sinners. That's what he's saying. In chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. The depravity of the, of the human race extends to Jew and Gentile. All men 
None are excluded. As we saw several weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 9, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Verse 19 of that chapter, he says, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. Universal depravity. All that God has done in and through Jesus Christ, providing a righteousness, requiring only faith, promising holiness, extending that offer to all men, all of that has been against the backdrop of the universal depravity and sinfulness of men. All men, both Jews and Gentiles, are born under God's condemnation and both Jews and Gentiles have the opportunity to be saved through God's sovereign grace, through faith alone. That's Romans. That's, that's a summary, a survey of the major doctrines of the book of Romans. Now, second point is the transition to practice. And turn with me to Romans chapter 12. I want to look here. This is probably one of the most popular, well-known passages in the book of Romans. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right here is where we see this great shift in the letter from what is primarily, we think doctrinally, describing the, the doctrines of redemption and salvation. The shift here now takes place and we're going to start talking about, or Paul's going to teach us about the practical application, the duties of Christians in light of what we have seen. Haldane again says, Here Paul, according to his accustomed method, enforces the duties of believers by arguments dependent on his previous exhibition of the grand and influential doctrines of the gospel. In other words, right here, Paul switches and all of the duties that follow come with the weight of all of the doctrine that preceded it. And now notice the language that Paul uses to summarize the expectation of the Christian. This is, I think this is sort of the summary of what, he, what he's going to begin to unpack. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer yourself completely and fully to God. The, the physical body in all of its actions, in all circumstances is to be laid on the altar before God. That, that, is, that, that summarizes everything. Just lay yourself down. But he also says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, the body cannot be given as a sacrifice if the mind is not also being renewed. So he's, he's sort of descending into coming, coming beneath that offering of the whole self, the body. Paul is essentially starting with the full, all-encompassing application and then descending downward into particulars. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What happens when the mind is renewed? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. That is to say, the renewed mind is able to discern or discover or uh, find out and or we could say prove experientially in every instance the exact way in which the sacrifice is to be offered. We would call that the will of God. And, and you will be able to see in your obedience that this way is good. This way is perfect. This way is acceptable. This is the way. A renewed mind notices that. I'm doing, I'm offering myself to God. I'm doing the things He commands me to do. And I can actually see that it is good, acceptable, perfect. The whole mind has changed. The transition to application has been made. 
All of these grand and lofty doctrines come down to this. If God has done all of this, then the only reasonable response is that you offer yourself back to Him. Your whole self, the whole of life, which will require constantly being renewed in your mind. That's His thought. That's what He's doing here. It's a transition to discuss the concept of practice. All right, the third heading then, the priority of unity. Now this might get technical. Again, I'm, trying, I'm going to try to summarize things that really they, they, they deserve more time. I'm, going to, I'm trying to be succinct. Notice that verse 3 of Romans 12 begins with the word for. That lets us know that what is to follow is directly connected with what came before. He says, verse 3, For by the grace of God, or by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Each according to the measure of faith, God is assigned. You see, he's still talking about the use of the mind. He just said, offer yourself as a sacrifice, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then now he's saying, now use that mind in this way. Here, here's how it's going to come out. All right, we're, we're, gonna, we're unclogging a drain here. Here's what's going to come out. You're going to start thinking differently, specifically about your, your own self-assessment. The application of the doctrine in the life of the Christian, summarized as offering oneself as a sacrifice to God, requires a renewed mind that will afford him or her, the Christian, the ability to discern and prove the will of God in their lives, and then narrowing down the focus even further, bringing this to a specific use. What do I do with my mind then? He tells them, that the re they are to use the renewed mind to think properly about themselves. In other words, step one. Step one in living as a Christian, in being a living sacrifice, is sober self-assessment. i got to recognize who I am in light of all that's happened. I, gotta, I have to start there. It is the will of God that you start by assessing yourself rightly. But pay attention to how he says it. Each, according to the measure of faith, God is assigned. Now, when we hear the word each, that lets us know he's speaking to individuals who make up a collection. He's going to go on to prove that, but I just want you to see that word each. Read it this way. Each, according to the measure of faith, God is assigned. Then look at verses 4 and 5. For... It's all connected. As in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Think about what's happening then. He, he, just, he just used some language that I think that you might recognize with regard to the body and members that, that should be familiar what he's saying is each individual is to start with this sober self-assessment. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but say, think with sober judgment for or because in the body of Christ there are different members. The members have differing functions. And the differing members of the body not only have differing functions, and not only are they members of the body, they're members one of another. All of that is the context in which we have to assess ourselves. In other words, the, the first step of sober, sober self-assessment is an assessment in light of the presence of other people in the body of Christ. And this sober, sober self-assessment is to be done according to differing measures of faith as God has assigned in the body of Christ. He doesn't say, offer yourself, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, separate issue, think of yourself rightly, okay? Separate issue, um, remember the body, the, the parts of the body and members. Not, these are not all separate issues. This is all one long reasoned argument. That's why the words like for and therefore are so important. 
because we make sense of what he's, what he's saying. Within the body of Christ, God has assigned varying measures of faith to each member. Each member is to think of themselves according to what God has given and exercise their gifts accordingly in the body. Now, now think of this in terms of an actual human body. And we're going to pretend like we're watching a cartoon and the, the members of the body are rational individual creatures themselves. And so the hand, what he's saying is the hand needs to recognize that he's a hand. And he needs to recognize he's not a foot. And the foot, she needs to recognize she's a foot. Assess herself, just look in the mirror and say, you know what? i got to be honest. I'm a foot. I'm not a hand. I'll never be a hand. I'm a foot. God's made me a foot. And so on with the eyes, the mouth, the ears. Okay, now if that's happening, if that we can say negatively, if that's not happening, the body is not going to function properly. If, if the hand doesn't just stop and say, I'm a hand and not a foot, this body's not going to work right. That, that's true with all the parts of the body. But when this distinction is realized, that's how the body begins to function properly. Every part knows its role and does its role and the body functions. Now what does this also assume negatively speaking? It assumes that the hand is not going to be trying to be a foot. The hand is content to be a hand and is going to let the footwork be done, be, let that work uh, be handled by the feet. You're, you're a foot. You handle the footwork. I'm not a foot. Why are you coming to me asking me about footwork? I'm a hand. You do the footwork. I'll do the handwork. Again, it assumes the mouth is not trying to be an eye. The eyes will be, do the seeing. The mouth will do the eating and the talking. In other words, every part is content, exercising its function, and fully confident that all of the other parts will exercise their function. Now, if we bring this back to the church and what he's talking about here, the saints are all members. We're all members of the body. So we're all body parts. What he's saying is each person is to assess himself or herself soberly according to the measure of faith God has assigned in the, in the, in the using of that gift. In light of that assessment, each member is to perform his or her assigned role, body part. And then he goes into that in verses 6 to 8, some of the details of that. So we can assume, just like a human body, the church will not function properly if these distinctions are not realized. If, if people don't understand what in the world they're here for, they, they just show up, it's not going to work. If you, if you think you're a hand, but you're actually a foot, it's not going to work. But, the flip side of that is, when this distinction is realized, the body functions properly. The, the body will do what it's supposed to do when everybody recognizes their gifting and their, the, the measure of their faith in using that gift. What does this also assume, negatively speaking? It assumes that the hand is not going to be trying to be a foot all the time and vice versa. It assumes each member is content to function in their God-given role and they are confident that the other members will function in their God-given role. To be more specific, I have to trust you to assess your gifts and carry out your function according to your measure of faith. And it wouldn't be right for me to come to you and say, I think you need this gift, this other gift, or I see the gift you have, use it according to this measure of faith. I'm going to push you beyond where, what, what you're able to do. That wouldn't be right. I have to say, that's up for you to assess. You have to deal with that, and I'm going to trust you to do that. At the same time, you have to trust me to assess my gifts and not go beyond the measure of faith that God has given me. It's assuming this interplay that we are all content with our place and with one another. That forces me to trust you. I just have to trust you. I don't understand it. I don't get it sometimes, but I just got to trust you. The Lord knows what He's doing. At the same time, you've just got to trust me. We've been given gifts. We've been given measures of faith. And it forces us to then trust each other. Listen to this. This is from John Piper. Quote, describing all this, he says, This produces a humble interdependence between us. With all the parts serving and being served, 
which leads to a unity and diversity which is more difficult and more beautiful and more God-glorifying than if everybody had the exact same measure of faith. And we could add, and gifts. The point that I'm trying to make here is that when Paul comes out of all of these lofty doctrines of Romans 1-11, through he enters straight into practical applications. And for the practical application to be of any use... We must understand that laying beneath every circumstance and decision the Christian makes must be the underlying commitment to offer oneself as a living sacrifice to God. Major point. But then when he begins to open that up and say, but here's what that actually looks like, the first and most suitable application is that we be renewed in our thinking as we relate to the body of of Christ. He, there's no way in Paul's mind that he would imagine a Christian is converted and then just wandering around in the world with, with no church. That, that, is, that is so far from the New Testament, it's, it, it, it's, um, it's, it's mind-boggling that people find that conclusion. This is the first place he goes. When he starts to open that up, that's where, that's where he goes. We, we use our various gifts to serve one another. And he addresses some of those gifts in verses 6 to 8. We could look at verse 9 and see various commands. And we, we could say, yeah, these commands, there are some of them that clearly would make their way outside of the realm of the sphere of the church. But there are others in the language of them we would say, this, he's clearly continuing with the same theme. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Anytime you see one another, that's a reference to interpersonal relationships between Christians. Brotherly affection, that's always a reference to fellow Christians. In other words, we are to love our fellow saints, to outdo one another in showing honor. We're commanded to honor brothers above ourselves. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. That phrase, live in harmony, would be better translated, be of the same mind toward one another. It's not the exact same wording as 1 Corinthians 1.10, but it's the same, very same idea. That's what he's getting at. You, you've got to put all of this to practice, into action, in your dealing with one another in the church. That's where he starts. He's talking about unity amongst the people of God. Now, we could trace out the theme and we can see, of course, he goes into discussions about the civil authorities, but then he goes right back into loving one another in chapter 13. Chapter 14, he deals with issues of of, uh, various positions and and consciences on various matters. But then in chapter 15... He sort of brings all of this to a summary to conclude the the practical matter of the the book. Chapter 15, verses 5 to 7, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's Romans. All right, let's pack up everything. Let's go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, we're we're going to be focusing just like we did with Romans on a bunch of different places and you can turn with me or you can just listen. Ephesians is not nearly as big. It's a shorter letter, so we'll move faster. (laughs) First, a survey of the doctrine. One of the first main things that stands out in the epistle to the Ephesians in, in, in its opening verses is the majesty of Trinitarian salvation. In Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. We're, we're taught of God's eternal election of grace here attributed to the Father. Verse 7, speaking of the Word made flesh, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And we're reminded of the bloody death of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Verse 13, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the triune God comes to seal us for the day of redemption. Some of you can probably remember the very first time you ever read this and you noticed 
the whole triune Godhead is involved in my salvation, in, in my whole salvation. And it struck you. You notice those types of themes. The whole God has involved His whole self in saving you and keeping you saved. Another major doctrine that permeates this epistle, not quite as easily traced out, is the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption is considered by many to be the, the greatest of all of the gospel doctrines. It is the apex. It's the top. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Speaking of God, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And then we see, speaking of Christ in verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Well, what's an inheritance? Well, that's what you get because you're the, the adopted son. You've been brought into the family. You get an inheritance now. Chapter 1, verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it because we're sons. Verse 18, Paul prays that the saints might know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Chapter 3, verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. What is an heir? The one who gets the inheritance. Why? Because you've been adopted into the family. You see this theme. We're predestined unto adoption and that brings us into this sphere where we get the inheritance. And the Gentiles are the recipients of the same inheritance. Along those same lines, a third doctrine that we see in Romans is the gathering of Jews and Gentiles into one body. We see that in chapter 2 verses 11 to 22. Specifically, he describes the Gentiles in verse picking up in 12... B, I guess you want to call it. The Gentiles are once separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off but have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's saying Jews and Gentiles have been brought together in this one body through the work of Christ. A very important truth if we want to, if we want to combat the, the, the dispensational error of, of two plans of redemption, two peoples of God or the, the sons of God and the stepchildren of God, however you want to think of it. If we want to have anything to say against that, we're going to, want to, we're going to come to Ephesians 2 and say, no, you're not understanding. There's one body, one people of God gathered in one Savior through one cross. Also, it's, it's very important for the entire church globally to recognize that all of the promises of God to us are yes and amen. Not just to them, to us. Right? That's a, that, I would say that's an important doctrine. And again, just like with Romans, all of this is set forth against the backdrop of our natural condition and sin. Apart from Romans 3, there might be no place in the New Testament which so clearly and succinctly describes our natural condition in sin than Ephesians 2. Verses 1 to 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The Bible teaches us if we just had this one passage... The Bible teaches us that by nature we were dead. We were walking the same course as everybody else in the world. We were followers of the devil. We lived in the passions of our flesh. Our minds and bodies dictated every action that we, and decision that we made. And we were by nature born with the, the wrath of God hanging over our heads from this one text. And it was against that backdrop, backdrop that the triune God... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has chosen us, has redeemed us by His blood, has sealed us for eternity. We were set to inherit death, and yet now we are set to inherit everlasting life in God. I think we would agree that the doctrines of this epistle are foundational, they're fundamental, they're structural. We come back to them time and time again. 
But notice with me, secondly, the transition to practice. After all of that, we see in the opening words of chapter 4, the transition to practice. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We see the word therefore. Let's us know he's not, this is not completely separated. He's not saying there's doctrine class or let's take a break. We'll come back later and we'll pick up practical application class. This is, is, he's, it's one thought. Because all of that is true, therefore, and notice what he urges, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I would say that is the, the overarching idea that he, if, he, if we could sum it all up. That's, that's what he's putting forth. In Romans, it's present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, what is this calling? Verse 4 gives us a little bit of a hint when it says, You were called to one hope that belongs to your call. We've been called to a hope. That's our calling. We're called to hope. An internal, confident expectation of what is to come. Hope. We've been called, if we go back to chapter 2, we've been called out of no hope unto hope. But there's more. Back in chapter 1, Paul prayed... Verse 18, that the saints would be enlightened, and I'm going to read it here, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. So this hope that we have is in a glorious inheritance. We've been called to live a life of hope knowing that a glorious inheritance awaits us. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 that we've been born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, the Christian is called to live a life of hope. That's the calling. But there's more. Back to verse 18 of chapter 1. Paul calls this hope the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And it, it does seem that he's referring to something that we already possess. It's, it's in the saints already. Some part of this glorious inheritance is already in the saints. Now, in verse 14, he said the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Well, the Holy Spirit is in the saints. Colossians 1.27 refers to the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In other words, Christ in us by His Spirit is the living hope or guarantee of a future inheritance, the earnest, the down payment. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we know that we will have the full heavenly inheritance. We could say the indwelling Spirit is heaven begun. New creation begun. Grace as others have said, is glory begun in the soul. It's already started. We talk about the inheritance. I can't wait to get to my inheritance. Brother, you're already living in it a little bit. You're already getting some of it. We're, 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 we're already receiving. We've already received something. Now think about this. Paul is urging the saints in light of all this doctrine to live in a manner worthy of this call, this call to this glorious hope, knowing I have the Holy Spirit, I have Christ in me. That is the earnest of a glorious inheritance. I don't have to doubt it. I've already got a piece of it. I know the rest is coming. That's the the, the living hope of a believer. Here he says, now live in a manner worthy of that. Live worthy of that. That's the transition. And thirdly, notice the priority of unity. 
surely when we try to imagine the magnitude of the phrase, worthy of the calling, surely we recognize we're, we're walking on ground that we can't even comprehend. Do, do, how often do we not think or even say, I can't do anything worthy of what I've received? It's not even possible. How can, how can anything that I do be even mentioned in the same sentence with what I have received in Christ? And yet he says, walk in a manner worthy of that. So how does Paul expand the idea? Where does Paul go after saying, live a life worthy of the calling? Look at verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, here's the worthy life. It's a life zealous to maintain a humble, loving bond of peace amongst the saints. The Spirit brings us together and then we maintain that unity with His help by, with, by, by keeping peace. The way the Spirit keeps us together is by working in us this grace of a peace-seeking, peace-keeping Spirit. And what did Christ say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, the adopted ones, the ones who have the inheritance coming. In other words, the birthmark of sonship, the likeness to God among those who've been adopted into His family, you want to bear the mark of the family? Make for peace. Be a peacemaker. When people see a peacemaker, they say, that's a son of God. To live worthy of the inheritance is to live like a son of God, which is making peace. That's what He's done for us, right? He made peace. Now, peacemakers and peace getters are two different things. Because there are a lot of people that if you wrangle them long enough and pull on them long enough, they'll, they'll be brought to peace. Sure, if you say, I'll do it. That's not what it says. It says peacemakers. The ones who actively pursue making peace. Those are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the ones that bear the family resemblance. The peacemakers. That's Ephesians. So then, from these two towering witnesses of foundational and structurally essential Christian doctrine, we learn that when moving from the majesty of the doctrine to the very first baby steps of practical application, the apostle starts with the relationships that we have with other Christians, especially aiming at those things which make for obtaining and maintaining unity. That's where he starts. He doesn't say... In light of what God has done, you need to go forth and you need to speak in the tongues of men and angels. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, in light of what God has done, exercise prophetic powers, show your understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge, move mountains, give away all you have, deliver up your body to be burned. He doesn't say any of that. And I think that's important because there are so many Great, lofty, bold things that men will do and aspire to do with this thinking, with all that Christ has done for me, surely I must have to do all of these other things. And yet they will neglect the baby step, which is often the most difficult. The baby step which is, think of yourself rightly. Assess yourself rightly in light of the other people in the body of Christ. Think of other people more highly than yourself. Humble yourself. Show patience with other people. Work hard to make for peace. That's the baby step. We know new believers don't have all of the doctrine figured out. And the Bible doesn't lead us to believe that. It just says you're going to get along with other Christians. The other things will come. 
This is the baby step. For all of our pursuit of right doctrine, if we do not balance it with its practical application, all summed up in love, we have failed. Failed. God says, I don't care what you believe if you can't love the brethren. I don't care. And we know that for a fact. We know that, don't we? Because we believe the Wesley brothers are in heaven. We believe Richard Baxter is in heaven. I think. Some people do. Richard Baxter openly taught what Doug Wilson is accused of teaching. Openly taught it. Denied justification by faith. And yet we say, but when you read what the man wrote, you say, how could he not be a believer? His practical understanding of of living like a Christian. You say, "I, I can't make sense of it, but I can't say the man's burning in hell. Maybe there were some things he didn't understand. We know this to be true. In our, in our living, the way that we look at men from the past, we say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. But when I read these other things and I see these other things, I, I can't help but say, it looked like the Spirit of God was working practically, making the, the practical application, even though maybe his mind was not caught up to it yet or he wasn't in a context where he was being taught well. We know this. God says, I don't care what you believe if you can't apply it in love to the brethren. So then, just two quick points. The first one is, by way of application, make Paul's leverage your own leverage. In other words, what does Paul use as leverage to, to pry the believers into making these applications? The mercies of God. All that God has done in salvation. Use that as your leverage. Consider God's mercy or the mercy of God toward you. Just stop and think, what has God done for you? What has God done with you, in you? How has He walked along with you? If God has done that for you, then how should you think about other people? And a lot of times we only think of this in terms of of leading up to our salvation. Boy, God was so faithful with me when I was lost. Do you think He stopped? Has He stopped holding your hand? No, He's still patient. Perhaps, maybe even we would say exercising even more patience now because of the light we have and yet we still sin. More patience. Down to this very day He's patient. His mercy is being extended in light of that How should I treat other people? How should I think of others? Consider the calling of God to an eternal inheritance. Should you not then aim for loving unity among the saints? If I've already received a deposit of the glory to come in which I will dwell with the saints in light and in in love forever, if I've already received that, then should it not show itself now in the way that I live? If I can't love the brethren, that tells me I, I don't have my piece of the inheritance yet. That would be fearful. It's a more fearful thing to me when people can't love the brethren. That's more fearful than if they can't articulate doctrine. Because that's the first thing you look for. How do they treat the saints? Use that leverage. The calling of God. What has God called me to? Then how should I treat other people? And then secondly, use Paul's leverage as your own. But then secondly... Having considered all of this, rest in faithful obedience. What do I mean by that? Rest in faithful obedience. I mean, a lot of people are convinced because of what God has done. They have a high view of what God has done for them in Christ. They are convinced that the only way that they or anyone else in the world could could reasonably respond is in the extreme, in the radical, over the top, constant coming and going. If they're not causing a stir somewhere where they're not really standing for God, they're not really really living the way God has called them to live. Listen and believe what the Bible says. God says, you want to live godly? You want to live in a way that is in, in some sense worthy of the calling to which you've been called? You want to have God smile upon your life? He doesn't say, be extreme, be radical, be intense. He doesn't say all that. He says, love my people. Serve my people. Love my bride. Take up the posture of the apostle who would gladly spend and be spent for others. Gladly. These, these, the Ephesians, or the, the, the Corinthians... They did Paul wrong. All that he did for them, 
And they mocked him and they laughed and they, they, they went after these other teachers who were better paid or, or actually required payment, all these things. And he, he kept coming back and he said, I would gladly spend and be sent, spent for your sakes. I'll, I'll, I'll do it again. I'll keep coming. That was his attitude because he had considered the mercy of God. He had considered the calling of God. Why was he like that? The answer is because he knew Jesus Christ. Because this is what Jesus Christ was like. I don't go to the Gospels to learn doctrine. Not that it's not there. I go to the Gospels to read about my Savior. To watch Him. To watch how He interacts with people. To watch and see how everybody just comes to Him and speaks. And, and he, just, he just exudes love. That's what, I, that's what we see when we see Christ. Paul knew that Christ. Not, not to minimize doctrine. Not that it's not important. Not that it won't lead to practice. But, but very often the, the, the softened heart and the tender posture of love will, will precede our mental and verbal articulation of certain doctrines because our hearts have been changed. So I, I think what we could say is this, this is to mimic our Savior. To love one another. To be peacemakers. To, to seek to obtain and maintain unity. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. Let's pray that God would, would help us. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, we read that as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So as the bread is broken for us, we hear our Lord say, Take, eat, this is my body. Not in the physical sense that the bread is actually His flesh, but it is a reminder that this Savior comes to sinners with His hand stuck out and says, Take, eat. This is my body for you. He offers that. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 of the warning, that we are to examine ourselves and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If anyone, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Please do not come thinking because this bread went in my mouth, because this wine or this juice went in my mouth, grace has been applied. No, you must go further. You must rest in Christ alone. So as the elements are passed, meditate upon what Christ has done, and then we'll come to the Lord's table together.